I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode 106 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, we're speaking with Jason Casey. Jason is the CTO of Beyond Identity, a passwordless identity management provider. He also serves as a fellow in cybersecurity with the Center for Strategic and International Studies in the National Security Institute. Previously, Jason was CTO of Security Scorecard, VP of Engineering at IronNet Cybersecurity, founder and executive director of Flowgrammable, and served in other technical executive roles. Jason received a bachelor's degree in computer engineering from the University of Texas at Austin and a PhD in computer engineering from Texas A&M University. In this episode, we discuss adjusting to COVID-19, his start in voice over IP, third-party security management, security without passwords, why you are a target, the role of a CTO, using the right language in security, startup hiring, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thanks for listening. Jason, thanks for joining me on the podcast. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So how are you surviving the uh, the times of COVID? The, uh, the times of COVID. Uh, it hasn't really changed work much, uh, but clearly we're not in the office. And uh, I lived in, uh, in the city, uh, New York City, before, uh, before COVID hit. So we've, uh, we've escaped to the countryside. Uh, we've always been kind of looking at getting a, uh, uh, a weekend house or a way to be able to kind of go into the woods and have the woodsy experience. And this was just a good reason. Yeah, we were, we were talking, you're, you're not too far from where I, I spent much of my time in high school and growing up and actually started a, my first technology company up in, uh, up in and around Poughkeepsie, New York. So I, I was doing uh, home computer repair and small business repair in, in the, the whole area. So I, I know I could probably still, if you told me where to go without looking at Google Maps, I can probably just get there. I know the roads that well. The, uh, the world is big. The world is small. No, it is. It's great. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice little sleepy community. It's uh, not too far from the city, but not too close. So how have you adjusted? You know, you said it may, may not a, a terrible adjustment, but, you know, a different, but, you know, being kind of maybe frontline and customer facing at time, I'd imagine you spent a good amount of time on the road and, and meeting with folks. I'm going to naturally assume that's changed as it has for most of us. Oh, no, we still meet all our customers in person. Oh, good. Thank <laughs> God. No masks, I'm assuming. Yeah. Yeah, no, of, of course, every, everything has basically been Zoom calls and uh, Hangout calls and uh, uh, WebEx calls. And uh, did you know Amazon has a, uh, a video conferencing solution? Uh, the, uh, um, yeah, no, it's, uh, it can be a little frustrating at times, right? Like when you're on uh, exclusively on video conferences, um, small things that you don't normally worry about start to become bigger issues, right? Like having longer latency on uh, on the connections means the more people you have in a room, the more likely people are going to start talking over each other. And they don't even mean to, right? It's just the fact that that's what latency uh, in the line kind of implies. You start talking and you don't really realize someone else has started as well and the trains collide. So it's, uh, you know, it's an adjustment. Um, it's for, you know, your typical engineer, 
I would say uh, for 80% of their time, they're maybe a little bit more productive or a lot more productive because they don't have the distractions of an office. They can, they can focus if they have a quiet place to, to kind of cut code. Um, but obviously it has its uh, weaknesses in terms of collaboration and strategizing. Um, you know, it, not much beats being in the room with other people with a whiteboard that you can share and, and work through hard problems on. I probably say that two or three times a day at this point. You know, I, I, I typically don't get called in to work situations when there's an easy button. It's usually something that takes some critical thinking and some fires to put out. And I, I have to say, I really miss that ability to just put everybody in a room, lock them there, give them, give them a lunch, take them out to dinner later, but force everybody to kind of work around a whiteboard and hash out an issue. And it's, it's certainly delayed a lot of implementation of new ideas. Yeah, no, for sure. It, I mean, it, it slows it slows down a certain type of collaborative activity. It doesn't stop it, but it definitely slows it down. Yeah. So how did you get into uh, cybersecurity? What was your, your journey? My journey. So uh, way back when, in uh, 2001, I was working for a, uh, a startup that was building um, <clears throat> a nationwide IP network to carry voice traffic. And it turns out uh, running voice traffic on IP networks, which was pretty fancy at the time, uh, was a lot cheaper than uh, traditional phone networks. And um, I was tasked with figuring out how to connect our network with some of the big uh, global partners of, uh, of voice services. We built out this IP infrastructure. They had built out this IP infrastructure. We wanted to connect it together and not on the PSDN side or the telef telephony side. We wanted to connect it at the IP side. And all of a sudden you're faced with this set of challenges, right? They have an administrative domain and we have one. And, um, you know, these things called gateways, which interface the, the, the PSTN or the phone switch network to the, uh, the data network. These were kind of like your cash machines. So they had to be protected. And, um, and I started getting into, uh, how do I protect these things from a firewall perspective? How do I, uh, protect them with people that are already inside the network? How do we monitor, uh, what's going on to look for nefarious traffic. I eventually moved on to a, a company that we purposefully built um, a, a firewall uh, for voice over IP. Um, and we also built an real-time analytics, although they were very, very simple analytics that would actually observe differences in traffic behavior and quarantine traffic based on uh, kind of showing some of those abnormalities. So I'd you know, I got in a while ago uh, as an engineer uh, and a product manager. And I've come in and out of it over the years. Most recently, before Beyond Identity, I was uh, the CTO at a company called Security Scorecard. We were much more focused on kind of solving an intelligence problem. How do you know about the risk and, assess and vulnerabilities of companies that you do business with, right? Because if you, if you believe the world is, is actually completing something called digital transformation, then you accept that companies are becoming more interconnected. And uh, breaches often happen uh, through your uh, interconnections or through your third party. So how do you know what's going on there? I'm sure you've never used the target breach once as an example there. Oh, never. Yeah. Why, would you, why would you use target? 
Yeah, well, it's it's fine, but it's true. You know, it's it's one of those things where I'll go doing security assessments, and you know, either I've helped many organizations fill out their their you know their SIGs in response to things in financial services, healthcare, and it's it's time suck. It's it's brutal, but I'd say, look, you know, why should this organization trust you as a partner if you don't take security seriously? It's it's kind of helped elevate it because it put it in business context, and all of a sudden I saw some organizations say, hey, you know, it's not worth it for whatever contract they're working on. Some of them completely transform their security operations and then won a lion's share of business from their competitors because they took it seriously and they became the vendor of choice because they cared. Um, So I'm sure you got to see that kind of transformation happen, you know, putting it into business terms. Um, has had, had there been other catalysts or similar, maybe similar catalysts that, that have helped maybe elevate the security conversation for the business? Um, companies have suffered real incidents. Uh, companies have suffered real losses. Uh, companies have lost business or become uncompetitive in competitive environments because they're not marginally worse than someone else. They're, they're distinctly worse than someone else, right? So um, I think a lot of ways uh, security has kind of elevated into the business world and always wrapped in this container of risk, which seems to be like a magic word. But ultimately, um, you know, I think the short answer is people just actually are care more now. Do you think it's just more, well, maybe part of it is uh, just the more visibility of breaches? I mean, there was, you know, a couple of years ago where, you know, we hear about the big ones, but then it seems to be now the the cadence of them being in the news, whether it be ransomware with extortion built in or other types of things, that it's it's something that is more in the public domain. It feels like a day doesn't go by that we don't learn of a of a large trove of passwords that exist uh, that have been dumped recently um, uh, to to the latest ransomware attack, right? Hitting. Uh, is it the uh, the is it Huntsville or the University of Alabama uh, system? Actually, no, it's not the University of Alabama. It's their I think they're K through twelve. Oh um, right, yep, yeah. But uh, but that, that's that's they're not a they're not an enigma. They're that's turning into the common scenario, right? Yeah, it's just funny when people I still think they think I exaggerate when I said I did anywhere from fifty to two hundred types of incidents a year. Forty percent of them being notifiable events like but well, I just don't hear about them like you don't hear about them all because there's that many you know you're only hearing the select few but a lot of it comes down to a lot of the basics that still seem to be there you know there's there's issues with open rdp ports on the internet unsecured vpn without multi-factor um passwords passwords still seem to be the the kind of crux of it where there's credential issues so how do we get out of this where we're we're not you know kind of playing groundhog's day every day to the same security problems the uh, so yeah, I mean passwords are the front door, and not only is the front door unlocked, but the front door is wide open, and that's what that's what how most events kind of get started. And the way you know the w- way we look at it here at Beyond Identity and kind of how we got started was, if you look at the risk that a password presents, it presents risk to both the 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 end user and the person or the service uh, on the other end of the the transaction, right? So. If you carry and operate a password database, you 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 aggregate uh, the risk of passwords in one location. Um, if you're the end user, obviously, if your password's floating around, if you're not, if you're reusing that same password in multiple places, you become vulnerable as well. So we look at that and saying maybe the uh, 
maybe there's something that we could do about the symmetry of the problem itself. Could we break the symmetry? And you know, there's there's techniques that have existed since the late '70s uh, that let you do authentication in an asymmetric way, right? And I'm, of course, I'm just speaking about asymmetric crypto. So we we asked this question of are are there the right technologies in place today for us to combine a really frictionless end user experience without the risk um, on either end of the transaction and kind of improve visibility and um, and security capabilities for administrators and and that really was kind of the the catalyst or the driver behind how we got started. So, you know, with that, you know, is, is there a future for us for things really being truly passwordless where, you know, as a user, it's just baked in or there's just things that occur with it's another identity token of some sort where I don't have to think about it. Yeah. The, uh, so there's a couple of things there, right? Number one is you want to eliminate the password from the end user. And the reason you want to eliminate the password from the end user is it's knowledge factors are fundamentally hard, right? Because you're expecting the end user to remember them. You're expecting the end user to come up with a unique one for every service they interact with. Um, you're expecting them to remember knowledge factors that have high entropy uh, or, or medium entropy and with, with some sort of fixed rotation. Like these just aren't things humans are equipped to deal with, right? Hence the, um, the industry of password managers. But um, password managers still fail a usability test, right? Like why do my parents not use a password manager? Do your parents use a password manager? The, um, the how do you solve security and usability at the same time is kind of a necessary solution for, or a necessary problem that has to be solved with these passwordless solutions. And so what we see is not just replacing the end user password by sending the end user essentially a password, but in a just in time sort of way. So think like magic links but really doing away with the password and exploiting the other two dimensions of authorization and authentication in terms of something someone possesses and something someone is. And are there ways of leveraging those two dimensions uh, as well as uh, developments in secure enclaves and TPMs, as well as uh, using a lot of tooling that already exists through asymmetric authentic uh, crypto for, for authentication, and uh, certificates for kind of cryptographic relation or, or this trusted way of understanding how two objects relate, really bringing those things together to give the end user this frictionless experience where they can actually authenticate into services when things look risky, when maybe this person uh, is, is displaying things outside of the norm, they don't appear to be coming from a, a place or a time that they usually come from, maybe there's a way for you to match friction against that risk. Like, hey, you, you don't normally access this service at this time from that, that location, uh, do me a favor and uh, uh, provide a, a, your finger or your face just so I know it's actually you. So matching friction to the risk of the moment is another key concept. Gotcha. So, I mean, how much of that is, is something that could be possibly rule-based, AI, machine learning? I mean, it sounds like a, a lot of those different types of technologies, quite frankly, can sit in the back end to, to help make those decisions? They don't all sit in the back end. So uh, something that we've done that's fundamental is, uh, so we built this thing called an authenticator. And our authenticator is a platform authenticator. Uh, and when, any, when someone builds an authenticator, they get to choose whether they build a platform or a roaming authenticator. So what we mean by platform authenticator is our software resides on the device that the end user is executing a transaction from. 
by being on that endpoint, you have an ability and you have a precipice to actually observe the state of the machine during the transaction. By being in the cloud or on the back end, you also have an ability to observe what the transaction is, the relative importance of the transaction. You can bring to bear any, um, any of the uh, uh, learnings from any sort of machine learning in the back end in terms of like building out uh, profiles of stability and normality for this particular end user or the cohort they belong to. But I, I guess what I'm really saying is having something both on the endpoint and in the cloud is incredibly powerful in a modern identity system because it not only lets you remove the password and have this frictionless end user experience, but it also lets your administrators build really fine grained controls and assert visibility and, um, and, and access on a per transaction level. Yeah, it kind of makes it's funny because we, we, we've been saying, you know, the, the endpoint is the, the new firewall for for years and security. It really is. It's it become a security device. We use it for multi-factor yeah. and everything else. So why take that away? Why not leverage it? Well, that, that's just exactly right. So <clears throat> one of the things COVID accelerates is this concept of digital transformation. And just to define that, so it's not like a, a nebulous marketing thing. Um, that means a company's services are purely cloud services. There is no data center. There is no hard and fixed network. People can pop up anywhere on the internet to do work. And it may even be true that they're not working on devices that were work issue, right? So how do you exercise um, the necessary security controls in an environment that doesn't give you fixed network, right? That doesn't uh, assert uh, asset ownership of the endpoint the person's using and you don't even control the application the person may be intersecting, right? And there's, there's really only like three paths or three possibilities. So one possibility is you can kind of steer the traffic from the endpoint to a location, right? Think like, fire, uh, like, like VPNs and whatnot and do traffic inspection and some DNS things. Um, another thing that you can do is you can, and this is very heavy, but you could try and force backend integration with all the services. Uh, there's large burden um, on, on you to do that integration and on the services to even support it in the first place. Or you could realize that identity is involved in every transaction that end user is going to make. And if you had a platform authenticator, then by definition, it has to be on any endpoint they ever want to use. So that now gives you a point of high ground. You can make a statement about the security risk of the device that's executing the transaction, the importance of whatever... who this is and, and answer uh, a question about risk of what's the risk the identity uh, claimed is the actual identity. What's the risk the device that's trying to receive this data is compromised or, or maybe not even compromised, but just not in compliance for what the data requires. Now with something like that, I mean, would it, would it still, that type of model, you know, in conception, still, still work with you know, your typical RBAC of privileged accounts, service accounts, things like that that are, that are not a human interface. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I missed the question there. Oh, sure. So for things that that you know are let's say privilege accounts, service accounts, where there might not be a human element per se in that, or it might be a secondary user account for that user, and somebody just infrequently logs in as an admin uh, because they they've done good good uh, account management hygiene where they have their user account and maybe an admin account separate. You know, where there might be less of that human interaction, can those those types of transactions still be tracked? Uh, absolutely, right? You still have to access a device from somewhere, right? Um, that device that's being accessed still has to either execute an authentication and authorization process 
or delegate that out to some function that does the same thing. So, excuse me, those are two points that give you in the, in the visibility into the two sides of the transaction in a way that is actually manageable, right? Especially if you're using some concept of, of delegation, right? Through uh, a PIM and a uh, PAM or through a, uh, a more traditional IDP. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, you know, with, with that too, you know, are there, are, are there, I guess it was probably answering my question, but it sounds like still there would be some, some level of, of dealing with things with like API keys or those types of, you know, kind of, I won't say pseudo credentials, but different types of credentials, you know, where there's different types of authentic, authentication and access controls, would that apply there too? Because that seems to be another area where, you know, we're seeing these things, uh, you know, whether developers spinning up things and, and putting in these API keys, where there's, there's some level of trust and communication authentication that happens between services or microservices, things like that, where, People aren't necessarily watching that, um, and it's 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 kind of been this area that I've been I've been more interested in and concerned about, quite frankly. Yeah, no, the, the there there is a difference, right? Like if a machine is driving a transaction versus a human, things are going to behave differently. The topology, the topology is always going to be a a client to server topology. However, um, it may be a uh, it it may be in response to some event in the system or because cron told it to do a thing at a moment in time. So uh, from an analytics perspective, uh, it's very, very similar. You're still looking for um, uh, abnormal behavior. You're still looking for things that are known to be incorrect. You're still building a profile of, of behavior and then, um, and then trying to track, <clears throat> excuse me, how is, this, um, how is this measured relative to past behavior? But ultimately, um, there's still two risk questions you're trying to answer with all of these analytics, right? Like, what is, what is the risk these credentials have been mismanaged and what is the risk the device has been mismanaged that's that's going to receive the data of the transaction or or that's trying to execute some remote state change yeah that yeah that that wind frame like that yeah it definitely makes more sense and i guess what about you know are there other types of these uh, applications you know, when we look at things like SCADA devices ics uh, iot you know, there's things, there's, there's a lot of challenges that comes with the architecture of them, but certainly with the way that they talk to each other and to different devices that might have to be treated differently. Yeah, no, that, so so it, <laughs> IoT is an interesting field. There's uh, the further back in time uh, that you have to work with in terms of like uh, uh, DNP devices and whatnot, the world changes drastically. So a lot of what I'm talking about is really centered around uh, traditional uh, IP infrastructure with the either an end user driving a transaction or a machine driving a transaction in your typical developer API key sort of uh, sort of model. Yeah, definitely. And I, I would I would imagine you know with with those you know thinking on our architecture hat, it's still it's still good habits to kind of maybe keep those somewhat. <laughs> Isolator to put in a different different world, you know, where I, I constantly see, um, or at least in the last couple of years, where there's these devices that are without a human head to them. You know, there might be a, a device that's plugged into a production network that I'm like, ah, oh, we just got in with default creds and now we can pivot off of it. It has a shell on it. It's got SSH, FTP. You know, this becomes a thing that then becomes a point to my to to pivot off of and go to other devices. The, uh, um, I mean, the, the, the same rules apply across all the industries, right? It doesn't matter if you're, you're working on um, 
equipment in an oil field that's, uh, that's just remotely controlled. Uh, you still want um, strong access. You still want network partitioning. You still want to make it hard to get that first precipice. But yeah, if you read the news on a day-to-day -day basis, how often, you know, how often do you read an account where it's like, yep, and they gained access based on a standard password for just a hidden port of SSH or even of Telnet on some of these older services? Yeah, it's far too often. <laughs> well, it's, I think I think it's 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 still this mentality that folks don't fully appreciate that attackers are not looking for that, you know, Mr. Robot's matrix type moment of like some cool slick hack they're looking for the path of least resistance to achieve their goals i would agree that is the probably the biggest misunderstanding from people not in the community right like i'm not important my business is not that important why would russia or china really come after me and they completely miss the fact that most of it doesn't have to do with nation states most of it has to do with uh, uh criminals that are looking for opportunities at the moment right there, I was I was trying to explain this last night actually to a group of um, uh, professors at a, a university um, uh, down south. They're they're different field theater professors, um, but the point I was just trying to drive home that wasn't obvious to them at the beginning is the uh, the ransomware that they were uh, uh, talking about. It didn't seek them out. Um, it sought out RDP with very specific uh, misconfigured uh, access controls, and. Uh, and, and there's no consciousness on the initial targeting. The consciousness was on what comes back up after the fishing expedition. And that, that, that seems to be the thing that people just kind of miss. Like these are all targets of opportunity. And it turns out most of the world is a target. Yeah, I've had those uh, un, unfun, let's say, post-incident uh, conversations where people are like, well, what did we do? Why did they come after us? I'm like, it, it really had nothing to do. It was nothing personal, which well, almost makes it worse in a way when, when they're like, but they did all this damage to my business um, and it's not personal, but it is. And it's like, I'm sorry. You're not special. You don't have a special place in the universe. You just happen to uh, put some money on the counter in front of the window that the world can see. Exactly. So, you know, when you look at approaching, you know, coming in as a CTO and, and leading kind of technology and going customer facing. I mean, it's, uh, it's got to, and, and from having been in similar ish roles, but also, you know, dealing with a lot of other CTOs in, in the past is, is that straddle be, be, between, um, still being a technologist, but also having to be kind of salesy and, and having some product focus. And how do you balance all that? So you kind of still keep your hands dirty with the technology, you know, how do you scratch that itch? Um, you got to pick your battles and you can't do everything. Um, I, I always love the, the buffet analogy, right? It's, um, I haven't been to a buffet probably since I was a teenager, <laughs> but it sticks. It's like going to an amazing buffet, seeing all of this great food. And your initial thought is I'm going to eat all of this. And, uh, and you don't really plan things out. And very quickly you make your way through a couple things and you're stuffed. It's, it, it was, it was no different in, 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 in school in terms of all of the, uh, the great things that you could learn. And it's no different uh, as a CTO, right? Like you have product responsibility, you have customer responsibility, you have technical strategy responsibility, and you have execution responsibility. And number one, you can't do it all yourself. Uh, so it starts with having a team that you trust, that they trust you, um, and that you can actually operate with. And each one of those things I just mentioned is actually has a lot of meaning behind it. They're not necessarily idle statements. 
The other thing I would say is um, wh where you lean in or where I've had to lean in, it just changes and it changes with the times, whether it's, uh, it changes with the maturity of the customer, it changes with the maturity of the product and the business. It also changes with the maturity of your reports. Um, you know, I have the things that I like. I like to be hip deep in the technology, especially when it comes to, um, you know, the guts of our policy engine, because the guts of a policy engine are based on uh, language theoretic concepts. And that's something I spent a lot of time on in, uh, in graduate school. It's really, really close to me. I love those topics. But the reality is, is I have a really good team um, that's going to do a good job on that problem. My job is to make sure they understand what that problem is. And, and also make sure that we're actually connecting out to customers because I could, you know, we can rattle off what makes a good, um, uh, a good system at the core of your policy engine, right? It has to be sound. It has to be complete. You need to make it hard for people to, uh, um, uh, to introduce uh, uh, policies that actually won't execute. You need to make sure you don't design a system that's not undecidable. But none of that means anything to customers, right? Customers want to understand how to solve their customer problems quickly based on what they're bringing to the table to begin with, right? Like they have backgrounds, they have knowledge sets. So it's, you know, there's no easy answer to your question. It's very situational, it's very dependent. I'd say maybe the best skill you can have going into a CTO role is probably just mental flexibility and a high amount of comfort with change and interacting with a lot of different, interacting with a lot of people from very divergent backgrounds. Yeah, I'm sure, this is shared also with some of your, your background too of, of kind of founding, but I mean, have there been things that you've positioned, whether it be a keyword or, or something that you, you felt from a positioning or presentation perspective that this is it because you looked at it a certain way, but then we're maybe pleasantly surprised when a customer said back, yeah, I don't care what you call it. This is what I call it. Have, have there been those <laughs> moments? Oh, of course. The, uh, the, I mean, so in, in, in graduate school, uh, you're you're beaten into submission uh, to using the uh, the vernacular that the researchers use of the day for any sort of problem that you're talking about. And once you break out of that microcosm, um, no one has a clue what you're talking about if you stay in that language. So customers are no different, and industries are no different, right? Like the the way people talk in the energy industry is different. Uh, because they fundamentally just have different concerns than the way people talk in the uh, telecommunications industry. Um, so yeah, I've absolutely had customers uh, rearrange things that I've said that I thought I was introducing a, a brilliant uh, string of words. And uh, in the end, they're like, uh, that's thanks. Thanks, Jason. Have a cookie. Here's, here's why it's actually important and just keep it coming. <laughs> yeah. I, when I, when I started my uh, computer forensic firm in New York city, I, in the beauty of today, you know, uh, going back to to where you are now in the local papers up there, I was in the 90s when I started my, my computer business. I was advertising and I had to advertise in the radio, uh, phone book, newspaper. And it would take four or five months to see if there was any uh, fruits of my labor but or really what I was spending. But then you know, moving to Google Keywords, it was interesting to see the immediate effects. And so when I started that business in New York City doing forensics um, – I got to watch the words that were driving traffic and one surprised me. And it was people using, instead of computer forensics, PC forensics, a word I would never use, <laughs> but it drove the most traffic. And it's it's always interesting to have to reframe those types of moments. Say, oh yeah, I guess somebody would call it that. It's not what I would call it, but it's not about me. So another another way of putting it perspective, right? The um, So this number is probably no longer accurate, but um, four or five years ago, 
um, we were trying to um, we were trying to estimate how many security professionals um, are actively working in the industry uh, against the jobs that are open. And we did some some back of the envelope calculations. We came up with something like two hundred thousand. And um, you know, how many businesses in the world have a security problem? And the answer is clearly like uh, tens, if not hundreds, of million. And um, and the, uh, you know, it's just a way of kind of driving home the point that at the end of the day, if you're trying to solve a problem and, and every business has a security problem um, to sell to a business, um, you are the minority as a security professional, right? 200,000 again, and granted the number is wrong, but add a zero to it, it's, you're still outnumbered, right? So you're more likely selling to your mom or your dad or your brother or your sister, not yourself. Um, and so I like that, right? Like PC forensics versus uh, computer forensics, right? You, you technically were more precise, but do you want to be precise or do you want to win? Exactly. So, you know, with folks that are, you know, thinking, and I've seen this happen qu quite a few times where we're individuals that are engineers, incredibly bright and say, I have, you know, the next great thing. Um, and they want to go, they want to go to market They want to start their own technology company. Um, what would be some advice you would give to these folks as they want to embark on that journey on their own? Make a prototype uh, and sell the prototype um, to someone who is not in your existing circle, right? Like, um, what am I trying to say there? The At the end of the day, it's easy to convince yourself of your own brilliance. Um, that's not how a business gets started. It's easy to come up with an amazing solution to a hard technical problem. It still doesn't mean you can sell it, right? Can you position it? Can you sell it? Uh, can you convince a customer to give you money for it? Can you deliver it and fulfill it? Can you do all of that at scale? Like that's 90% of what starting and running a business is about. Not that into, not that starting intellectual idea. It's still necessary, but it's not what makes the world go round. And so, you know, I, we all see these, these people, we all have done this ourselves at some point in time, right? Like we've come up with this really interesting solution to a problem, but you know, the first question is, does anyone else actually care about that problem? And, and how do you actually go about figuring out if other people care about that problem in a way where they're willing to part with money? So the, the, the number one thing is, can you build a prototype of the idea? Can you, can you produce something that is not words? that you can let someone who is not you play with uh, to where they can get they can get a strong understanding of, of your thing, your idea, and the problem that it's solving. And then the next step is convince them to part with money for it, right? And you know, if you're truly starting this, you're passionate, and passionate people by definition become charismatic. And um, you know, anyone can start a company. It's just filing paperwork and making a uh, uh, and making a slide deck. That's not what's hard. What's hard is taking your idea, turning it into a thing and selling it to someone. So yeah, can get convince someone to part money for the prototype, right? Or at least a promise of parting with money if you deliver against the prototype. And, and after you've got a couple of those together, then, then maybe you've got an idea. It, it's starting a company is hard. Um, it's more about persistence and follow through and attention to building the business than it is about being excellent in any one field. And one thing I found too is accepting you're not right about everything. It's tough to, to kind of quite frankly, get your butt handed to you every now and then um, and realize yeah, you're wrong <laughs> about a lot, a lot more than you, you're willing to realize. The, the only thing you have to be right about at the end of the day 
is understanding when you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it's like very Zen. Are, are there maybe some other, you know, things that you've learned along the way, you know, maybe those landmines where you, where, where you can recommend other people not blow their legs off from. Um, so if you're interested in the startup world, you know, it's, it's really, you know, everyone says, what does it take to, to, to make a startup? Well, clearly it takes an, um, a problem that you're passionate about solving. It takes a team because no one can do anything on their own. Um, that team has to be qualified, right? It can't just be your, your dog and your cat. Um, the, uh, but really, really importantly, and, and maybe the most important is a, a market has to exist, right? Or it has to be obvious that you could create a market. Um, and so one of the things that, that really kind of blew my socks off when I, uh, when I went to security scorecard was that was one of the times that I truly saw the, the power of the market pulling a company. And, and, you know, you go back and you read these interviews with some of the legendary founders of companies. Um, you know, my, uh, um, some of my current, uh, uh bosses included, um, when you pick the right spot and the hurricane shows up, it's going to move you. Um, and you have a lot of opportunity to, to fine tune and tweak and to optimize, but picking that market is incredibly important in the, uh, the longevity of your idea. Would you, I mean, I, I tend to have a, a bookshelf full of, you know, different business books, not more, more, I would say more business books than technology books, but have there been any resources like books or things that, that you found particularly helpful that you would recommend to others? Um, Sure. Uh, so I love reading about other stories of how companies started. Um, the, you know, uh, you're always reading, uh, most of the time you're reading kind of rose tinted glasses versions of how that actually played out, but they're still really, really illustrative of, of how did they play out? Who did what, uh, how did it come together? So the, um, you know, any book about almost any company that was started in the last 20 to 30 years, is is worth reading the um you know the book that came out about amazon a while back i'm going to blank on all these book names now but there's <laughs> a there's an elon musk book that's good the jobs book is good from walter isaacson the uh um you know i i, I actually really enjoyed michael lewis's book the new new thing yeah. uh, about jim our chairman um the uh i think the first book i ever read like this it was called the superman and I, I randomly found it in my college library, and it was about Seymour Cray and how he founded Cray Supercomputer back in the, the 60s or the 70s. And um, even that was really interesting. And so, yeah, I think more than anything, those books kind of help show that, uh, you know, a lot of the success in these companies is the, the, the passion and the perseverance, uh, as opposed to one particularly clever idea. Yeah, I, I think I, I would share the same sentiment. Having, having read many of those books and, and looked at those stories thinking, you know, gosh, there was that one idea I missed. And had I only thought about that, and then you realize that was, that's just a small, small part of it. There's so many other contributing factors. And a lot of it's just persistence and just grinding it out, quite frankly, and being willing to uh, adapt to things and <laughs> put a lot of things that you love doing aside to continue to move towards that. Can you build it? Can you market it? Can you sell it? Can you support it? Now, can all of those things happen if you're not the personality in all of those meetings, right? Like, uh, and that, that, that itself, that in itself is a different game. Yes. I mean, and I, I guess when you look at things like that, for folks that have exited or, or maybe taking positions like that yourself to leave, you know, how do you 
deal with that is saying, okay, how do I build something to get myself out of it too, in a way where I'm not attached to it anymore? Um, <laughs> so it's very situational, but I, you know, this is where, this is where having a good team helps, right? You're, you're not going to start a start. You're not going to build a startup in any meaningful way that'll be successful. If you do not have a, a team that you trust, that trust you. And, and fundamentally when you're scaling a business, what you're, what you're, what you're trying to do is you're trying to put things in place that, that basically ensure the business is going to operate um, in the way that you would expect if you're not in the room pulling all the strings and matching all the buttons. And so it's not just about building a team, but it's about building a team that can build a team. And you know the thing that we like to say at Beyond Identity right now is the first 50 hire the next 500. And you know we really, really mean that because we've all experienced that, right? We're a bunch of folks that have done a lot of startups before. And the, the folks that we're hiring right now, you know, we hire against potential um, for future leaders in our company. When we need a ramp to 500 to 1,000 engineers, we want to make sure that we have at least two or three qualified people already on staff to take some of those leadership roles. Um, so, yeah, it's about, you know, it's about building a business that can sustain itself. It's about making sure that you can keep goals front and center in front of teams. Um, but fundamentally, like building those teams is is... Is a, it's the day-to-day -day job and there's no there's no magic answers people are different people are great people are awful you're going to make mistakes it's just you're going to be wrong and just recognize it quickly yeah I, I remember sitting through quite a bit of the y combinator stuff and hearing about many of the you know the, the startups in the past 30 years that it was those first 10 50 hires that really set the tone and, and completely changed my hiring practices and how I look for people. Um, because I really, that really does set the tone for how you're going to scale. It really is like an investment, right? Like if you put a dollar in now and you let that dollar sit for 20 years, it's going to accrue a lot later. Well, replace dollars with people. Um, you want to be investing in the best people that you can find that have a clear potential and trajectory in front of them because they're going to be the ones that truly grow your business, right? Your job is to put them in place and stand up the winners and the losers. Their job is going to be to kind of help you execute. So with that too, I'm I'm, I'm going to assume safely that there had been a fair amount of mentors and people that have helped you along the way. Have there been any that come to mind and any particular advice that they gave you that you you were like, gosh, thank thank God I heard about that. Um. So there, there's definitely been a ton, um, and they've all kind of served very very different purposes. Um, or serve different purposes sounds a little bit too stringent. They've all helped in very, very different ways. The, um, I would say the, uh, you know, the folks that, that I'm working with right now. So right now uh, I work with a guy named uh, uh, Thomas Germalock. Uh, he's got quite a bit of experience in, um, in uh, at, the, at the boardroom level and the executive level of very, very large companies and kind of helping understand how they think and, and kind of how to sell to them, like that's very invaluable. Um, there's another gentleman that really kind of helped me think through a lot of the uh, the side of how VCs um, not just analyze deals, but also how to um, how to just interact with VCs in a way where you're going to get something out of it more than just uh, more than just cash. Um, so like Alberto Ipez was one of those guys. Um, the guys over at uh, Ed Sim was actually pretty good over at Bold Start. Um, Kareem Ferris over at Google Ventures is 
a fantastic thinker about product market fit, market traction fit. Um, yeah, there've definitely been a lot of people that have kind of helped. Um, they've all kind of had their own specialties and takes on, uh, takes on things, but, um, you know, it's also, it's also been useful to be near, um, people that have been successful before, right. As a, as a point of inspiration, uh, in Austin, Texas, I uh, was fortunate to meet a guy named John Mays who started a company called Network Translations, uh, which became the, the PIX uh, uh, firewall division or business unit at Cisco. And honestly, all we ever talked about was uh, airplanes and uh, firewall rules. And so, you know, not a lot about business, uh, growing a business or starting a business, but, um, but you know, it was fun and it was, it was reassuring to see that, uh, it was just reassuring to see that Success is possible. It's possible by people that you actually know. Um, it's good to be able to kind of call them up when times are bad and just hear them tell you a story that actually sounds worse. You know? <laughs> yeah, I think there's, there's uh, you know, for, for those of us that have struggled with uh, imposter syndrome, myself certainly wearing that badge with a certain amount of pride, you know, you think that, gosh, if somebody else has to have it easier. There was, there was some path that had I only taken people like, no, it's, it's, it's a rocky path in life and particularly in work and, and trying to build a brand. It's, it's not easy. Yeah. The, uh, there's a guy named Tom Mendoza. He was, uh, um, chairman or vice chairman of NetApp, uh, there from the very, very beginning. And, uh, he gives the, he, he's, he's this amazing kind of inspirational speaker. And uh, I heard him talking, uh, he was on our board at, at Scorecard, I heard him talking once. Some of our more, uh, our younger hires, and, um, and one of the messages that he, he gave was, uh, um, I can't do his voice, but it's like, uh, startups are hard. Startups can be shit until they're not. You just gotta keep showing up and putting in the work. And, um, and eventually you, you go from, uh, from feeling like you're always behind the eight ball to, um, to just like, you can't believe you built this thing. Yeah. A lot of it too is also, yeah, I, th I think is, is reorient reorienting your expectations that you can always learn something from this, even the hard times. It's like, okay, what can I take away from this? It's not always about the financial gains. If you took the money, I would try to tell you, if you take the money out of the picture, what do you, what else are you looking to achieve? And they kind of have to pause and think, oh, wow, like, do I want to grow personally? Do I, what else do I want to do? And you have to kind of frame things along the way, often in different ways. Yeah. The, uh, it, it, that, and I, and tying that back to something you said earlier in terms of like advice to others, uh, you got to hire missionaries, not mercenaries, right? Like we all, uh, a startup is a hard job. You're, 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 you're trying to do a thing that by definition, other people say can't be done, can't be done efficiently, or, um, or it's just too difficult for some reason. So you're fighting against the grain. You're never going to be able to pay people what large companies can pay them. Um, right. Not for a long period of time. And how do you, how do you surround yourself with people that actually kind of get through that? And the reality is, is you find people that are similar to you. They, they're just, um, obsessed with the problem domain. They're obsessed with, uh, with making a, a great customer experience around the problem that you're actually, uh, uh kind of, uh, rallying around, right? They're missionaries. They're not mercenaries. And so, you know, we all, we all joined startups knowing that on the front and, you know, yeah, in the long run, uh, they can be successful uh, in ways that are um, that that just seem to blow the mind. 
But most of the time, uh, that's not the case. And you have to be okay if that doesn't turn out. You have to be okay with just being on that mission. Love that advice. Well, Jason, where, where can people find you online? Where can people find me online? So I'm not a big, uh, so I am on Twitter. I don't actually use it that much, to be honest. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. I am very responsive, though, uh, when people drop me uh, uh, DMs on, on Twitter and LinkedIn. Definitely. I'll, uh, I'll be sure to put that all in the show notes. And again, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, uh, it was great talking to you. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.